Production. Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, July 11th, 2014. Yahweh willing, if all goes right, or at least halfway as planned, I guess, because nothing ever really goes right. We will be moving to Panama City. We're relocating to Panama City. We have a place. Um, it's a temporary place, but it, it's um, a nice place nonetheless. And we will be there by July 29th and 30th at the latest. Hopefully there will be no break in, in, in the programs. I plan on having Brother Ryan here on Friday, July 25th, and Pastor Mark Downey on July 26th. On September, I'm sorry, on, I don't know which month follows July, right? On August 1st and 2nd, I plan on doing open lines all weekend because, of course, I won't have a whole lot of time preparing, to prepare for programs when I'm carrying boxes of dishes and books and computer gear, right? So so that's what's going on at Christagenia. The um, programs will run as scheduled, Yahweh willing. I wanted to talk about the Canaanites tonight, and, and I decided I'm going to leave it for tomorrow's program, for Christagenia Saturdays. Tomorrow's program is going to be mostly two seed line myths dispelled and I'm going to talk about the Gibeonites and the Canaanite woman for, for a while during tomorrow night's program, that because of some of the abuse that the Jewish quarter of Christian identity, that, that, the, that those who would um, mongrelize to seed line have, have been, um, that they've been abusing those stories in order to promote their universalism, and those stories cannot be cannot be abused in that fashion. In fact, if you want to look at any of the dealings with the Canaanites and imagine that they add up to universalism or to anything other than an absolute requirement that the Adamic bloodline be pure in order to have communion with God then you have thorns in your eyes neglecting the law of God in favor of your fast and loose interpretation of Scripture. Yahweh told us the Canaanites would be thorns in our eyes, and every time you want to let a Canaanite, such as that pudgy little Jew boy in Chicago, interpret your Bible, you are indeed going to have thorns in your eyes. There's no doubt. He's fulfilling his destiny. Do not discard the law of God. The law of God comes first, and all biblical interpretation must follow suit, because Yahweh God does not violate his law, regardless of the sins of men. I want to talk a minute about the debate that never was. When I split, when I split paths with the pudgy little 
Well, well, he turned out to be a Jew boy. I didn't think he was then, but I'm convinced now. With the pudgy little Jew boy in the, in in Chicago, this clown had um, said on on his Voice of Christian Israel program back on January 23rd, 2011, and I was listening, and and this um this clown knows I was listening because I was typing to him in the chat, and, and um, I was annoying him with my questions. He, he said that we would have a debate in three weeks from January 23rd, 2011. So I waited for the, um, for the invitation or the arrangements in the email, and they never came. They never came. And now for... Um, for three and a half years, this clown saying, oh, Fink refuses to debate me. He's a coward. Well, for three and a half years, this SOB, this damn Jew has been lying. He has never, ever asked me or invited me to a discussion with him over our scriptural differences. Never. He's only offered me invectives, ad hominem attacks, assaults on, on, on my character. He, he never, um, he, he gives straw man arguments in his papers and on his programs. He argues against things that he imagines or, or basically fabricates me saying. He never argues against what I actually say. Well, well I'm mentioning this because there are a lot of people and I think they're all damned fools that still listen to this clown, and they wonder about these things that he's saying. He's never offered to debate me, and there's a fellow on Facebook who, who's been cornering this, this Jew boy in, in Chicago on his own Facebook page. And, and if you want to go see the Eli James Facebook page, you, you, you could do that and, and see that he himself, has, has indirectly admitted lying. He's never, ever asked me to debate. Yet he claims that I'm a coward and I'm afraid to be, debate him. He's a typical Jew. That's typical Jewish behavior. It's absolutely incredible. He's, he's right. He's a damn dirty Jew. That's how they act. They lie at every turn. John 8.44 and he admitted it on his Facebook page. Amazing. Somebody um, on Facebook has been pressuring him and cornering him in, in, in arguments, and, and he's obliged. And, and there's several lies, and, and I get the screenshots, and I'm able to verify them through friends with Facebook accounts because I no longer have an account, and I post them on my forum. So they're posted on the Christiania forum. He's been caught lying twice. The other lie is that I'm some sort of federal agent. And he admitted. He said, oh, if Fink stops making videos about me, then I'll take back the fact that I called him a federal agent. Well, that's an admission that he's lying. He's too stupid to know it. Like Skip Baker says, he's a stupid Jew. If he was a smart Jew, he would have admitted that that guy, that rabbi in the video, looks just like him. I shouldn't even be bringing this into my um, in, into my dialogue. I understand that. 
I understand, but but it's hard to ignore these clowns. What when they stand there week after week and attack you and attack you? What with ad hominem attacks and, and um, undue character attacks and lie after lie after lie, week after week. And people entertain that crap. It's incredible. That's what we, it, it's time that Christ, Christian identity grew up. And the people that claim to be Christian identity recognize these clowns that have turned Christian identity into a circus in order to bastardize it. And stop listening to them. Because you, by listening to them, by communicating with them, you are enabling them. You go to that clown's talk show and you listen to his program, you are enabling him. You are encouraging him. That's what you're doing. And it's the same thing with all these dirtbag trolls that, that have um, basically attempted to commandeer Christian identity on the Internet. The pecker puffer that's trolling the forum right now, I'm not going to mention his, his name because he's just dying for attention. He's just dying for it. And, and he's, a, he, he's a child molester. At one time, I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt because I didn't know him. He is the definition of profane. I have no doubt that he's a child molester. The other clown at, at Cherokee People's Ministries, y'all know who I'm talking about. He's not even white, and, and he's been, he has been enabling the pecker puffer for all these years, engaging with him, feeding, they feed off each other, they legitimize each other by engaging one another all the time. And, 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 and the guy at Cherokee People's Ministries, CPM, right? He, he is constantly engaging and legitimizing the pudgy, little Jew boy in Chicago. So it's a triangle. It's a three-ring circus. They've set up a three-ring circus in, in order to turn Christian identity into a circus. That's what they've done. They don't really produce any honest, scholarly work. The only one that comes close is the pudgy little Jew boy in Chicago when he cuts and pastes everybody else's work and calls it his book, right? Look at it. There's not one bit of original scholarship in it. It's all cut and pasted from other people's writings. Don't look at it because it's not worth your time. He's the only one that makes an attempt to look scholarly. The other two are just clowns, and all they do is fill their, their atmosphere with invective and, and spend 90% of their time attacking real Christians that they disagree with. It's time Christian identity grew up and stopped enabling, stopped facilitating these clowns.
this little rant is really it's really just a warm up. for the program that um, I have scheduled for July 25th with Brother Orion, which will probably be entitled Mongolizing Christian Identity. We have to identify the people that are doing these things, the people that are trying to twist Christian identity back into Judeo-Christianity and bastardizing it because they want popularity, because they want, um, they, they want to coddle people that are concerned about their half-breed kids or their half-breed spouses. That's not the word of God. The word of God is that we, we disassociate ourselves from half-breed kids and half-breed spouses, Ezra chapter 10. We don't pollute the word of God for the sake of, for the, sake of the world. That's anti-Christ. That's not Christian. With that, we will start a presentation of Romans chapter 10. The last two segments of this presentation were spent in a lengthy discussion of Romans chapter 9, which Paul began was an ardent plea for his brethren whom he defined as his kinsmen according to the flesh. Here it is evident that Paul did not use the terms brother and kinsman the way today's denominational sects claim that he used them. Rather, Paul's brethren and Paul's kinsmen were according to the flesh. And those whom he was concerned for, he was praying for in the opening verses of Romans chapter 9 because they did not yet accept the gospel. Paul went on to explain that his brethren and kinsmen according to the flesh were Israelites. And to the Israelites belonged the adoption, the sonship, the position of sons, the covenants, the law, the service, and the promises of Yahweh God. That leaves nothing for non-Israelites. In the end, they won't even get crumbs. We see that Paul reckoned Israel according to the flesh and not according to what any of them believed as individuals. Rather, he was concerned that he still had brethren according to the flesh in Judea who did not believe. Therefore, your brother isn't somebody that believes. Your brother is those near to you in race. And then we hope to bring the message of Christ to them. That's the example Paul sets in Romans chapter 9. Paul was concerned that he still had brethren according to the flesh in Judea who did not believe. This is a 
clear refutation of the so-called spiritual Israel doctrine of the denominational sects, which is a lie. Israel is according to the flesh, and Israel was reckoned by tribes in Matthew chapter 19, in Luke chapter 22, in Acts chapter 26, in James chapter 1, in Revelation chapter 7 and 21. Tribes can only be natural, genetic Israelites. Tribes are according to the flesh. Denominations are according to belief. Paul wasn't chasing after denominations. What Paul had from the beginning of this epistle already explained to the Romans that they too were the children of Abraham and of the nations promised to come from the loins of Abraham. That was Romans chapter 4, right, for the most part. Here in Romans chapter 9 and 10, he uses the term Israel, more specifically of the Israelites in Judea. And we must bear in mind that using that term Israel, he does not mean to reference the Edomites of Judea, who he already told us in Romans chapter 9 were not Israel. But where Paul uses the term Israel as a label for the Israelites in Palestine, he does that. By that, he does not mean that those dispersed Israelites of the nations were not Israel, even though they were not explicitly called by that name. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 9, verse 30, Now what may we say? that the nations not pursuing justice have happened upon justice. But that justice is from a faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of justice with law, did not attain. Now the majority text, and therefore the King James Version, has an interpolation in Romans 9.31, which makes it seem as if Paul is saying something different that perhaps those nations aren't Israel. But Paul's not saying that. None of the ancient manuscripts contain the text of Romans 9.31, which the King James Version reflects. After Paul explained, in Romans 9.24, the Christians are called from among the nations as well as from among the Judeans, and by the Judeans, he means the true Israelites. The Edomites don't have a chance. He immediately cited Hosea, where the prophet explains that Israel would be put off by Yahweh God and later reconciled to him. Paul then cited Isaiah in Romans 9.27, where he stated, Moreover, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, if the number of the sons of Israel were as the sand of the sea, the remnant shall be preserved. At Paul's time, the number of Israelites 
long ago scattered among the nations, certainly were as the sands of the sea. They were the Israelites among the nations to whom Paul brought the gospel. Paul's statement here does not count them out of the salvation of Christ. However, Paul's expression in quoting this passage of Isaiah agrees with his prayer at the beginning of Romans chapter 9, which was his hope that the remnant of true Israelites bearing the name of Israel in Palestine would continue to be preserved. The Judean Israelites, they were the progeny of the remnant of the nation that was preserved in Isaiah's time. When Isaiah wrote those words, they were considered the remnant of Israel because all the rest of Israel was taken away and put off from God. And they were no longer called Israel. Yahweh said, I will call my servants by another name, speaking of those people. So those people that Isaiah considered the remnant of Israel, those people who Isaiah chapter 10, where Paul's quoting, 10.22 I think it was, we cited it last week at the end of chapter 9 of Romans, those people who would return Isaiah was considering the remnant that would be preserved. Paul is merely copying Isaiah. There's Israelites in all the nations which he goes to. They are the scattered, put-off Israelites, no longer called Israel. But there's Israelites of the remnant, which Isaiah referred to, and Paul is referring to them as the remnant of Israel, just as Isaiah did. But it doesn't mean that those people scattered off in the nations were not Israel. They certainly were. They were the children of Israel who were as the sands of the sea. The Judean Israelites were the remnant. Those who had returned following what Isaiah had prophesied concerning the Assyrian and Babylonian deportations of the greater part of Israel. Those who later became the nations. Those who were as the sands of the sea, which Paul also refers to here. Contrasting Jacob and Esau in Romans 9, Paul asserted that the word of Yahweh would not fail inferring that those in Judea who continued to reject the gospel did so, because not all of those in Israel were Israelites, a reference to the historic fact that at that time the remnant of Israelites in Judea were indeed mingled with the accursed Edomites under the same government and religion. Paul goes on to compare Jacob and Esau in order to corroborate that fact. Therefore, reading Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, we must understand that Paul is referring not to two parties, not merely Jews and Gentiles, which is the false reading and the false dichotomy of the denominational sects. 
Rather, in these three chapters, Paul is comparing and referencing three parties. First, there are the remnant Israelites among the Judeans. Then, there are the Edomites, the vessels of destruction among the Judeans. And they're also spread out into the wider Roman world. And finally, there are the scattered Israelites among the nations. Of these three parties, only two of these parties are candidates for repentance and conversion to Christ. Comparing Jacob and Esau, Paul reinforces the faith in the ancient promises of Scripture and asserts that the promises in Christ were according to the promises of the Old Testament made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He explains... He explains that it is not for us to question this and that it was the will of God to show mercy upon Israel and only upon Israel. Paul said in verse 16, So then, it is not of he that wishes, nor of he that strives, but of he that Yahweh shows mercy upon. And saying that, Paul had spoken in response to Yahweh's election of Israel in Exodus chapter 33, in the very same place where Moses said, So shall we be separated, I and thy people, from all the people that are upon the face of the earth. Therefore, no other people can strive for or wish to be a Christian according to Paul of Tarsus himself in Romans chapter 9. Returning to verse 24 of Romans chapter 9, where Paul stated that Israel was called out not only from among the, the Judeans, but also from among the nations. Paul explains how Israel was among the nations. He explains how they got there by quoting several passages from both Hosea and Isaiah in reference to the Israelites cast off by Yahweh in the time of the Assyrian and, and Babylonian deportations, which began over 750 years before Paul wrote this epistle, these passages, which Paul quotes in verses 25 and 26 of Romans 9, demonstrate as much where he wrote, and as he says in Hosea, I will call that which is not my people, my people, and that which is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be in the place where it was said to them, meaning Israel, you are not my people, There they shall be called the sons of Yahweh who is living. Paul defines adoption or sonship right there. It's defined by the prophet Hosea. Nobody can change that. 
Here Paul demonstrates that the gospel being brought to the nations was being brought to the nations of the descendants of Israel who were taken away captive by the Assyrians. Because that is who Hosea was addressing. And by citing Hosea, Paul is explaining that those very people, those people deported by the Assyrians, those were the people who were the recipients of the adoption or sonship mentioned by Paul in Romans 9.4. With this, Paul is also corroborating. He's in a different way explaining his earlier definition in Romans chapter 4 of the faith, of the faith of Abraham, that Abraham's seed would become many nations and that those nations would be the heirs of the promises of Abraham's faith and that that is what Abraham believed. The faith of Abraham isn't some mystical degree of faith as the main, mainstream denominal, denominational sects want to define it. The faith of Abraham is what Abraham believed. Paul is teaching the reconciliation of the ancient Israel to Christ according to the prophets. And that would, of course, include the Romans, or Paul wouldn't be writing to them, just like Paul didn't write to Egyptians, Hutus, Kenyans, Arabians. Paul was certainly not teaching universalism, since he himself stated that it is not of he that wishes nor of he that strives but of he that Yahweh shows mercy upon. And Hosea also explains, in those same passages, Paul quoted, that Yahweh promised mercy to these cast-off Israelites. Throughout the scripture, there are no other recipients of the promises of mercy from Yahweh God in Christ outside of Israel whether it be the remnant in Judea or those who were long ago scattered abroad. Now, proceeding into Romans chapter 10, we must bear in mind that Paul is often still contrasting Jacob and Esau, Israelites and Edomites in Judea, especially when we get into chapter 11, and he only cares about those in Judea who are Israelites. But, as we have seen, Paul's comparison does not discount nor exclude those cast-off Israelites from among the nations who are being reconciled to Yahweh who are also a part of Paul's discourse. So there are three parties being considered by Paul in these chapters, not merely two.
Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, truly, the preference of my heart and supplication to Yahweh is for preservation on their behalf. The majority text, and therefore the King James Version, right? adds the words to the end of this verse on behalf of those who are of Israel. None of the ancient manuscripts do that. It is clear from the context of chapter 9, which is not broken by the artificial chapter divisions contrived centuries after Paul had written, that Paul was concerned with the Israelites among the Judeans and that not all Judeans are Israelites. Many of them are Edomites. So he wants preservation on behalf of his brethren, his kinsmen, according to the flesh, because that is who he is referencing here. I attest to them that they have zeal for Yahweh, but not in accordance with full knowledge ignorant of the justice of Yahweh and seeking to establish their own justice to the justice of Yahweh, they would not submit. And of course, that word may have been translated righteousness. In these passages, I chose to use justice. Even today, men create images of God, and that would be a small g God, right, that originate in their own minds rather than in Scripture. And they zealously pursue what they come to believe are the desires of that God which is in their minds, but which are, in reality, mere idols that they have invented for themselves. Right. If you attribute things to Yahweh, the God of the Bible, that he did not say, then you've created an idol. Doing so, they create their own sense of right and wrong. Influential men can persuade communities to follow along, and we witness that today in the formation of all these denominational sects. Judaism, in the centuries before Christ, became such a sect when the door was opened for the conversion of the Canaanites and Edomites. We know just by that happenstance alone, that Judaism was already greatly corrupted from the commandments of Yahweh. The Christian duty is to examine the scripture and to discover and pursue the will of the God of the scripture, who is the God of their fathers and the God of creation. The prophet Ezekiel foretold of the very thing Paul explains here, in Ezekiel chapter 33, where the word of Yahweh addresses the children of thy people and the house of Israel, which is facing the captivity. And I'll read from verse 10. Therefore, O thou son of man, speaking to Ezekiel, speak unto the house of Israel. Thus ye speak, saying, if our transgressions and our sins be upon us, and we pine away in them. How should we live then? Say unto them, as I live, saith the Lord Yahweh, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, 
but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? It's Israel in their sin that became wicked. Therefore, thou son of man, say unto the children of thy people, The righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall thereby in the day that he turns from his wickedness. Neither shall the righteous be able to live for his righteousness in the day that he sins. When I shall say to the righteous that he shall surely live, this is the new covenant that's being explained here. If he trusts to his own righteousness and commits iniquity, all his righteousness shall not be remembered. But for his iniquity that he committed, he shall die for it. In other words, as Paul often taught, if you want to seek your righteousness through the law, you are obligated to keep the entire law. You better not sin. Guess who else taught that? The Apostle James, where he said that that if a man keeps the whole law and sins, he is committed transgression against the entire law. I'm I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what he said. Back to Ezekiel. I'll start at verse 13. When I, Yahweh, shall say to the righteous that he surely shall live, if he trusts to his own righteousness and commits iniquity, all his righteousness shall not be remembered. But for his iniquity that he has committed, he shall die for it. Again, when I say to the wicked, thou shalt surely die, the wicked were defined earlier as the house of Israel, those people Yahweh was casting off. If he turns from his sin and does that which is lawful and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives again what he had robbed, this sounds like the tax collector in the, in, the New, in the New Testament, right? Zacchaeus. If he restores the pledge, gives again that he had robbed, walks in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live. He shall not die for it. Yahweh. And Ezekiel explains that those who would trust of their own righteousness would find death for a single sin, but those who were sinners and repented would find life. Paul explains here in the next verse that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Therefore, Israel should not seek their righteousness in the law. They should seek their righteousness in Christ. If they continued to seek righteousness in the law, it was their own righteousness which they sought and not the righteousness of Yahweh. 
Yahweh, I'm sorry. With this, we will move on to Romans 10, verse 4. Indeed, Christ is the fulfillment of the law for justice or righteousness to each one. That is trusting or believing. The Greek word, ponte, the dative singular of pas. Pas means, it's Strong's number 3956. Pas means all, the whole. Liddell and Scott explain that the word has an idiomatic usage equivalent to another word, ekastis, which is each or every. So the phrase may have been rendered that Christ is the fulfillment of the law for justice to everyone that is trusting or to everyone who believes, as the King James Version has it. In any event, however, the Universalists love this passage, right? But it's only speaking to those who were under the law, who needed, who needed the fulfillment. In any event, when we see a phrase such as to each one, or to everyone in any sort of writing, we must examine the context in which that phrase is placed, the context of the writing, in order to discover what is meant by such a phrase. That's the way we normally read books, right? Somehow, denominational sects do not apply normal reading skills to scripture. Here the context of Paul's discourse limits the scope of every one to every one of the children of Israel, since Christ came to redeem those who were under the law. And that's the topic of the discussion here. Each one that is trusting is each Israelite who has faith in Christ. It's not that some Chinaman can say, oh, I believe. Paul is still comparing Jacob and Esau here. He's still speaking about the Israelites in Judea who have not yet accepted the gospel. That's the context. It cannot be. Verse 4 cannot be plucked out of this context and applied however some denominational preacher would like. He's sinning. He's stealing the word of God. Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He himself said, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am come not to destroy, but to fulfill. Paul explained in Romans chapter 7 that Christ fulfilled the law by dying so that Israel, Christ being Yahweh in the flesh died so that Israel could be freed from the law, sacrificing himself on behalf of the nation. When Christ, when Christ fulfilled the law, Israel was given the opportunity to be reconciled to Yahweh. Submitting themselves to Christ, Israelites received that justification promised in the prophets by Yahweh. 
Isaiah 45, verse 25. In Yahweh shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. But submission to Christ means obedience to Christ, which means that one must uphold the moral laws of God written on our hearts while relying in Christ for propitiation for our sins rather than upon rituals. Because if we think that we can propitiate our sins, then we fall into that category in Ezekiel chapter 33 of depending upon our own righteousness. Verse 5, Moses writes of the justice which is from of the law, that a man who practices these things shall have life by them. Now here Paul quotes from Leviticus chapter 18, and I'll read from verse 4. Ye shall do my judgments and keep mine ordinances to walk therein. I am Yahweh your God. Ye shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am Yahweh. Now literally, Paul's Greek, as the Hebrew also has it, reads, shall live in them. That the man who practices these things shall live in them. However, the meaning is that one would live or have life if one keeps the law. And therefore, it is interpreted in that manner here in the Christian New Testament in Romans. Some have been confused by the passage in Romans, imagining that Paul is saying that if one keeps the law, one would be obligated to continue in it, that you were stuck living in it. But that is not the meaning of the original passage in, Levitic in Leviticus where all Israel was indeed obligated to continue in a law because there was no Christ for propitiation. They were obligated to it, they were bound by it, and therefore if they kept it, they were assured life. But if they broke it, they would surely find death. That is what Paul refers to here, and our translation eliminates the possible con confusion. Verse 6, but righteousness from faith speaks in this manner. You should not say in your heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who shall descend into the abyss, that is, to bring the anointed up from the dead. I'll explain that difference momentarily. But rather, what does it say? The word is near to you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is to say, the word of the faith that we proclaim. The word Christos in verses 6 and 7 may have been translated as anointed in both passages here in Romans chapter 10. In verse 6 
and in verse 7. It certainly cannot refer to Christ himself in verse 7. If, it, if we want to imagine that, then we must imagine that Paul denies the resurrection, which is highly unlikely because he professes the resurrection in many other places in his epistles, even here in Romans. Therefore, it must refer to Israel as the anointed people of Christ in verse 7. It can also refer to Christ with his people, the anointed collectively. In hindsight, maybe I should have translated it that way in verse 6. For instance, the apostle Jude quotes Enoch, where he wrote in Jude 14, and Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. The questions which Paul asks here in verses 6 and 7 are apparently a paraphrase of Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 12 and 13. The conclusion here in verse 8 is from verse 14 of Deuteronomy chapter 30. There, in the law, Yahweh is concluding the blessings of obedience and the curses of disobedience which he had presented to the children of Israel through Moses. Since the Septuagint is not much different from the King James Version, we will read the King James Version from Deuteronomy chapter 30 from verse 10. If thou shalt hearken unto the voice of Yahweh thy God to keep his commandments and his statutes which are written in this book of the law. And if thou turn unto Yahweh thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul, for this commandment which I commanded thee this day, it is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. Now, these two verses Paul quotes here in Romans 6 and 7, he's not really quoting them. He's paraphrasing them because the subject of Deuteronomy isn't the anointed. It's the word. It is not in heaven that thou shouldest say, who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea? Now, now Paul talks about the abyss, which may be thought to be Hades or hell or Tartarus, the underworld. That's the usual perception. Neither is it beyond the sea that thou shouldest say, who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near unto thee, in thine mouth and in thine heart, that thou mayest do it. 
See, I have set before thee this day life and good and death and evil, the blessings of obedience and the curses of disobedience. Christ is the tree of life. Christ is also the word made flesh. Israelite Christians who love him should keep his commandments, thereby choosing life over death. A return to Christ by Israel also necessitates a keeping of those laws which he had placed upon the hearts of the children of Israel. So we see Paul cites from Deuteronomy chapter 30 that the word is very nigh unto thee in thy mouth and in thy heart that thou mayest do it. And we see Paul told the Romans speaking to the formerly pagan, or really about the pagan Romans, that when the nations which do not have the law by nature practice the things of the law, these not having the law themselves are a law who exhibit the work of the law written in their heart. Likewise, in Jeremiah chapter 31, we read from verse 33, But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith Yahweh, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. Since Yahweh had only given his law unto Israel, then this message of Paul's in Romans chapter 10 must also be exclusive to Israel. They were only Israelites being spoken to back there in Deuteronomy chapter 30. This message is exclusive to both the Israelites in Judea, as Paul explains here, and also to the Israelites of the dispersion, as Paul explained in Romans chapter 2. From Psalm 147, verse 19, he showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and judgments unto Israel. He has not dealt so with any nation. As for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise Yahweh. As we previously explained, in Genesis chapter 3, the cherubim were sent to keep the way to the tree of life. And later, in the Exodus, the cherubim were set atop of the Ark of the Covenant where the tablets of the law were kept. Therefore, keeping of the law is the way to the tree of life for the Adamic man. Every Adamic man here on earth today is only here because at some point in the past, his ancestors 
and everybody's had it in the history of Adamic man, his ancestors could have raced next, but instead they chose to keep the law. Whether it was conscious or not, it was in their hearts. Verse 9. Verse 9 of Romans chapter 10. That if by your mouth you were to agree with Prince Joshua, some manuscripts add the word Christ, and trust in your heart that Yahweh has raised him from among the dead, you shall be delivered. With the heart one believes in justice, and with the mouth one agrees in deliverance. Indeed, the writings say, all who are trusting of him or believing in him shall not be ashamed. <clears throat> Excuse me. All who are trusting of or believing in Christ shall not be ashamed. Paul is quoting Isaiah 28:16. He had already quoted the same passage in Romans 9:33, and we cited it and discussed it, dis, di, discussed it at length in our presentation of that chapter. This prophecy in Isaiah is addressing the hirelings of Ephraim. Ye afflicted men and ye princes of this people that is in Jerusalem. Isaiah 28, verse 1, verse 3, verse 14. Then Yahweh says to the prophet in verse 15, Because you have said, We have made a covenant with Hades and agreements with death. If the rushing storm should pass, it shall not come upon us. We have made falsehood our hope, and by falsehood shall we be protected. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh, even Yahweh, behold, I lay for the foundations of Zion a costly stone, a choice, a cornerstone, a precious stone, for its foundations, and he that believes on him shall by no means be ashamed. The verse Paul quotes here, it can't be taken out of this context. And I will cause judgment to be for hope, and my compassion shall be for just measures, and ye that trust vainly in falsehood shall fall, for the storm shall by no means pass by you, except it also take away your covenant of death, and your trust in Hades shall by no means stand. If the rushing storm should come upon you, you shall be beaten down by it. Isaiah is saying that those of Israel who reject the stone shall suffer trial. But their covenant with death shall nevertheless be taken away. However, those of Israel who accept the stone, which is Christ, shall not be ashamed. Christ was laid as the cornerstone of Zion. So that the children of Israel who reject him may stumble and fall. But those who accepted him 
would be assured of their salvation according to his promise. Paul refers to the same prophecy again in Romans chapter 11, in verse 11, where he asks, and he's speaking of his kinsmen according to the flesh. Now I say, did they stumble in order that they would fall? Because many of the Israelites took the side of the Edomites in the condemnation and rejection of Christ. However, the Edomites themselves, those from whom today's Jews have descended, they were not his sheep in the first place, since they were not Israelites, and they were never intended to accept him. Yahshua tells those opposed to him in John chapter 10, but you do not believe because you were not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So they never had a choice not to stumble. They were designed to stumble. They are vessels of destruction. The gospel was supposed to separate the wheat from the tares from that very time, as soon as that stone was placed in Sion. Paul's afraid that some of his brethren are falling with the tares. It is not only for those who choose Christ, but for those whom Christ has chosen. And of course, Christ only chose the children of Israel. As we have seen Paul explain throughout this epistle, that it is not for he that wishes or for he that strives. It is for the called in accordance with purpose, the chosen, the preordained, the appointed beforehand, which Paul had already explained in the previous chapters. Paul is preaching against universalism because the called in accordance with purpose, the chosen, the appointed beforehand, they are only found in the Old Testament children of Israel. Paul refers to this same thing in another context. In 2 Timothy, chapter 2, where he wrote, Nevertheless, the foundation of God stands sure, having this seal. The prince knows, or the Lord knows, them that are his. And let everyone that names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, vessels of mercy, but also of wood and of earth, and some to dishonor, I'm sorry, and some to honor, and some to dishonor. If a man, therefore, purges himself from these, referring to the vessels of dishonor, He shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified, and meet for the master's use. You separate yourself from the enemies of God and from all the unclean and the aliens and the vessels of dishonor. 
and you become useful to Christ and prepared unto every good work. Paul tells though Paul tells those who accepted Christ that they must separate from those who rejected him. Paul is saying essentially the same thing, but in quite a different manner, that the Apostle John taught in his second epistle, 2 John 9 to 11. Each who going forth and not abiding in the teaching of Christ has not Yahweh. He abiding in the teaching, he also has the Father and the Son. If one comes to you and does not bear this teaching, do not receive him into the house and do not speak to welcome him. For he speaking to welcome him takes a share in his evil works. Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2 was warning those who accepted Christ to reject those who rejected Christ. And the Apostle John was teaching that same thing. Christ said, my sheep hear my voice, and therefore in the Adamic world of the apostles, out of the mingled children of Jacob and Esau among the Judeans and also among the nations, the wheat and the tares were separated by this acceptance. They were separated a long time ago. They're still being separated. But most Judeo-Christians, well, they don't even know what's going on. Verse 12. For there is no distinction of Judean and Greek. That doesn't mean that there's no distinction of Judean and Chinaman or Greek and Mandingo. There is no distinction of Judean and Greek since the prince himself is of all riches to all those calling upon him. Indeed, all who would call on the name of Yahweh shall be delivered. Now Paul cites Joel 2.32, a message made exclusively to the children of Israel. And here Paul is proclaiming its fulfillment in Christ. Paul's not taking this verse out of context. We will read from Joel chapter 2, verse 23, to see the context. Be glad then, ye children of Zion. This doesn't apply to anybody else. Rejoice in Yahweh your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the later rain in the first month. And the floors shall be full of wheat, and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust has eaten, the canker worm, and the caterpillar, and the palmer worm, my great army, which I sent among you. And you shall eat in plenty, and be satisfied, and praise the name of Yahweh your God that has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, according to the flesh, right? And that I am Yahweh your God and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. 
And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And also, upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit, and I will show who is Yahweh's servants, Jacob, my servant, whom I have chosen. That can't be applied to anybody else. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of Yahweh comes. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of Yahweh shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. As Yahweh has said, and the remnant whom Yahweh shall call Israel, the remnant of Israel. Paul is not merely taking words out of context. Those who would include the other races into the equation, into the equation of who, whosoever shall call on the name of Yahweh, they are inviting the locust, the canker worm, the caterpillar, and the pommel worm to take the table of the children because they were references to people. In Joel's time, they were references to the Assyrians and the Babylonians who devoured Yahweh's kingdom. In our time, they are still references to people to all these non-Israelite people who have flooded into the Israel nations. The great army he has sent among us for our punishment once again. Rather, in the context where Paul is using the passage, it refers to Israel in Judea and Israel scattered into the nations. And the context in Joel, where the words were originally written, refers to Israel in Palestine when they were taken into captivity at the time that they were being scattered into nations. This promise was made exclusively to those people and being the word of God, it cannot be changed. Therefore, in the very next verse of Joel, which is in Joel chapter 3, the topic changes to a prophecy of Armageddon, the harvest, the valley of decision, and the regathering of scattered Israel. Every Israelite who calls on the name of Yahweh shall not be ashamed and shall be delivered. But the prophecy is not for anybody else. Back to Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then would they call to him that they have not believed? 
And how would they believe of him they have not heard? And how would they hear apart from proclamation? And how would they proclaim unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how fair are the feet of those bringing the good news of good things. But they have not all listened to the good message. Indeed, Isaiah says, Yahweh, who has believed our report? The word of Yahweh says at Nahum 1.15, Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace. O Judah, keep thy solemn feasts, perform thy vows, for the wicked shall no more pass through thee. He is utterly cut off. However, in verse 15, Paul is certainly quoting, not from Nahum, it's only a similar prophecy, but from Isaiah 52, 7. And then in verse 16, he quotes what we know as Isaiah 53, 1, which is also quoted in relation to Christ in the Gospel of John at John 12, 38. We shall read parts of Isaiah 52, through to the beginning of chapter 53, so that we can see precisely what Paul was referencing. From Isaiah chapter 52, Awake, awake, put on thy strength, O Zion. Put on thy beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come into thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake thyself from the dust. Arise and sit down, O Jerusalem. This is a vision of Israel's reconciliation to Yahweh in Christ. Loose thyself from the bands of thy neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus saith Yahweh, ye have sold yourselves for naught, and ye shall be redeemed without money. And they were bought back from sin, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 7, verse 14. And they were reconciled to Yahweh through the passion of the Christ. For thus saith Yahweh God, my people went down aforetime into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. They were taken captive by the Assyrians. And after that, they spread themselves throughout the nations of Mesopotamia and into Europe. Now therefore, what have I here, saith Yahweh, that my people is taken away for naught? They that rule over them, make them the howl, saith Yahweh. And my name, Continually, every day is blasphemed. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, they shall know in that day, the day of the gospel, the day of Christ, that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I, and Christ is Yahweh.
How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings, that publishes peace, that brings good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that says unto Zion, salvation is for Zion, the mountain of God's people, the good tidings, the gospel, peace, these are all between Yahweh and Israel. There's nobody else involved in this. Trying to involve somebody else in this, beyond whom Yahweh God has already called and chosen and preordained and appointed beforehand, is stealing from God. You're attempting to rob God by bringing aliens into the new covenant or by bringing bastards into the new covenant. You can't do that. He made it with Israel. The publishing of salvation is for Zion that publishes peace that bringeth good tidings of good, that publishes salvation, that says unto Zion, Thy God reigns. Christ is king, king of Israel. Here we see exactly why Paul quoted these words from Isaiah, and they apply to the children of Israel who were taken off into captivity becoming the nations from which Israel would later be called. To continue a little later in the chapter, from, verse, from the middle of verse 9, for Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Yahweh has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence. The horns of Joseph pushed his people to the ends of the earth. It's a reference to the children of Israel that were dispersed throughout the entire world. The ends of the earth, meaning all the Israelites, wherever they were driven. Depart ye, depart ye, go ye out from thence, touch no unclean. Scratch out that word saying, it doesn't belong. It's in italics. It's a bad interpretation. Go ye out from the midst of her, be ye clean, that bear the vessels of Yahweh. Those with the damnic spirits must separate themselves from those without. For ye shall go not without haste, not with haste, nor go by flight. For Yahweh will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rearward. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, and he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. So shall he, this is a messianic prophecy, 
speaking of Christ. So shall he sprinkle many nations, the nations of Romans chapter 4. The nations promised to come from Abraham's seed. The sprinkling of blood upon the people was done by the priests as a condition of the law. And Paul relates this to Christ in Hebrews. Hebrews chapters 9 and 10. To continue with Isaiah, the end of chapter 52. The king shall shut their mouths at him, for that which had not been told them they shall see, and that which they had not heard they shall consider. And into chapter 53, who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of Yahweh revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of a dry ground, he has no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Romans 10:17. So then faith is from hearing, but hearing the word of Christ, the gospel of Christ, and the report of Christ are matters of prophecy in Isaiah. And they were explicitly prophesied for the same children of Israel of those ancient captivities, as well as the remnant of Israelites in Judea. Paul here, in Romans 10.16, shows that Isaiah had also prophesied that there would be incredulity or disbelief on the part of the hearers. Isaiah chapter 53, a messianic prophecy, goes on to explain how the Christ would be despised and rejected by men. In verse 17, Paul explains here in Romans that the faith of God is to be found in the words of the gospel of Christ. And he is, he is explaining how that gospel is found in the prophet Isaiah. Verse 18. But I say, have they not heard? Yeah, rather, into all the land went out their voice and to the western extremities of the habitable world, their words. That Greek phrase, ta parata, tesoikumenes, is literally the ends of the habitable world. Yes, it is. Liddell and Scott have had paratas, on the opposite side, an opposite land or quarter, especially of the west as opposed to the east. And they give an example starting from Homer, who used the term in that same manner. Another way to simply say end is Escados. Aside from Homer, Herodotus, in his Histories, Book 3, discusses the, the Caceratides. I would pronounce it Caceratides. They are the Tin Islands. 
from which the Greeks knew the Phoenicians to have been, been mining tin in ancient times, the Phoenicians being the Israelites of Tyre. The Cassaretides, or Tin Islands, that was an ancient name for the Scilly Islands and Cornwall in Britain. Actually, in Wales, I believe. And he calls this region the extreme tracts of Europe towards the west, and he also calls this region the ends of the earth as George Rawlinson translated the phrase, near contemporaries of Paul, the first being Tacitus, the Roman historian, calls the islands at the extreme, at the extreme west of Europe the ends of the earth. And on three occasions in the Agricola did he call them that. And Strabo, speaking in geographic terms of the east and west ends of the Oikumene, did not use the word paratus. He used the word acra or acras. Paratus is the opposite side, literally, in the context of the culture at Paul's time. It's the western extremity of the Oikumene, since Paul is on the eastern side. That's how it was used. That's how the phrase was used for nearly a thousand years to the dawn of the Christian era. Therefore, the reason for the Christian New Testament having western extremities where literally it could have said opposite side or ends, but that's a, an oversimplification of the meaning. The reason that we have written western extremities is cultural. It's not literal, but it's cultural. It's the cultural context in which the phrase was used. This saying certainly seems to be an allusion to Psalm 19.4. And Psalm 19.4 says, Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. But in Psalm 19.4, David is praising the glory of God declared in the majesty of the heavens the heavenly bodies. He's talking about the heavenly bodies when he says that their line is gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Paul, therefore, seems to be making an analogy here, equating the messengers of the gospel to the majesty of the heavens, which David describes in Psalm 19. Romans 10, verse 19. Then, I say, had Israel, meaning the Israelites in Judea, had Israel not known. Firstly, Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by a nation 
that is not. By a nation without understanding, I will provoke you to anger. As we have discussed at length, for most of Romans chapter 9, Paul was comparing Jacob and Esau in reference to the Israelites of Judea and the Edomites of Judea. And in Romans 9, verses 22 and 23, Paul introduced the Israelites of the dispersions into his dialogue, who are those which are the called from among the nations. Paul quoted passages from Hosea and Isaiah in reference to the captivities and dispersions of ancient Israel, which had long been pagan. They were not followers of Yahweh when they were taken away by the Assyrians. They had long been pagan. And that serves to substantiate the assertion. The cast-off Israelites of the dispersions were described by Hosea as being not a people. And in Christ, they were reconciled to Yahweh and once again considered his people and the sons of Yahweh. These people, these Israelites of the dispersion, who were not a people, would provoke to jealousy those Israelites of the remnant in Israel who continued to look to the law for their righteousness, not yet having accepted Christ. Paul is quoting Deuteronomy 32.21 and using it as a rhetorical device. In the context of Deuteronomy 32, Yahweh was warning Israel that he would provoke them to jealousy with another people who he considered to be no people. Here, Paul is using that passage in much the same way, however, this time, the people who Paul refers to, the people who were not a people, were indeed the nations of the cast-off Israelites of old, the nations of Hosea chapter 2, who were not my people. That's who he is referring to here in comparison, in contrast to the Israelites of Judea who had been keeping the law and wanted to maintain their special status. The example is um, in Acts chapter, I believe it's chapter 23, I could be wrong, it's right around there, where Paul gets arrested and he speaks to the general crowd of the people. Now there's Edomites amongst them and there's Israelites amongst them. And as soon as he mentions that he was sent to the nations, they started jeering him, threatening to kill him. They nearly rioted. They were provoked to jealousy. So my interpretation is corroborated 
by that event in Paul's life. Which actually happened a short time after he wrote this epistle to the Romans. Verse 20. Then Isaiah very boldly says, I am found by those not seeking me. I am become manifest to those not inquiring of me. Then to Israel he says, The whole day long I stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contradictory people. And the universalist would say, Aha, we got you on this one. Here Paul quotes Isaiah 65, verses 1 and 2. These verses are important to universalists. However, they cannot be used to support universalism once the context of the prophecy is understood. And to do that, we've got to go back and read Isaiah, right? Paul uses the words, then to Israel, he says, as a rhetorical device presenting the text found in Isaiah 65, verse 2. However, the statement does not mean that the words of Isaiah 65, verse 1, were not also said to Israel, for indeed they were. We shall once again turn to the Old Testament in order to understand the original passages, to see the context. We shall begin in Isaiah chapter 64, where Isaiah provides a vision of the lands of Israel and Judah following the Assyrian and Babylonian invasions. And he says in Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, putting these words in the mouth of the children of Israel, right? But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are as filthy rags, and we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. This is a reference to the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities for the sins of Israel. And there is none that calls upon thy name and that stirs up himself to take hold of thee. And, and then 65.1, Yahweh says, I am found by those not seeking me, right? For thou hast hid thy face from us and hast consumed us because of our iniquities. But now, O Yahweh, thou art our father. We are the clay, and thou our potter. And we are all the work of thy hand. Still speaking of Israel. Be not wroth, very sore, O Yahweh. Neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, we beseech thee, we are all thy people. And of course, Yahweh had no other people. Thy holy cities are, are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house, where our fathers praise thee, is burned up with fire. And all our pleasant things are laid waste. And Isaiah here prophecies 
because it hadn't happened yet, he prophesies the destruction of the temple. Wilt thou refrain thyself for these things, O Yahweh? Wilt thou hold thy peace and afflict us very sore? Now that's the, the tone set. The context is set in Isaiah 64 for the opening of Isaiah 65. But first, we must recall that over 200 years before the Assyrian invasions of Israel, from the time of the divided kingdom and Jeroboam one, the official religion of Israel was Baal worship, which is recorded in 1 Kings chapter 12, where Jeroboam commanded the people to forsake the temple worship of Yahweh in Jerusalem and to worship the golden calves that he had set up at Bethel and at Dan. Judah also had fallen into long lapses of paganism during this period which is also evident from the scriptures in descriptions of things such as the revival of King Josiah, which is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 21, where the priests basically found the book of the law and blew the dust off it and then read the law to the people, people who hadn't heard it. In Jeremiah 16, and I'm sorry, in chapter 64, Isaiah is portraying the appeals to Yahweh made by the people upon the destruction of their lands. But the people had no care for Yahweh their God before their troubles began. Now, in Isaiah chapter 65, Isaiah portrays Yahweh's response to those appeals of the people. And he says, I am sought of them that asked not for me. I am found of them that sought me not. I said, behold me, behold me unto a nation that was not called by my name. Why? Paul quotes this here in Romans 10.20, but the word of God is not referring to non-Israelites, as we see in Isaiah chapter 64. It is referring to the ancient Israelites who had forsaken their God. And then, when they were taken off into captivity and punished for it, then they remembered him. Then... They wanted to call upon him, and they didn't find him, not until the time of Christ, when they received the gospel. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 2, I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people, which walks in a way that was not good after their own thoughts. Paul quoted the first part of this in Romans 10.21, and it is referring to the same Israelites, and the records of Yahweh reaching out to Israel are found throughout the Old Testament scriptures. 
Isaiah 65.3, a people that provokes me to anger continually to my face, that sacrifices in gardens and burns incense upon altars of brick, which remain among the graves and lodge in the monuments, which eat swine's flesh and brought of abominable things as in their vessels, which say, stand by thyself, Come not near to me, for I am holier than the now. Than now, these are a smoke in my nose, a fire that burns all the day. It was not the remnant of Judea which was doing those things, but Israel in captivity from the time of the Assyrians that was doing those things. Behold, it is written before me: I will not keep silence, but will recompense, even recompense into their bosom, your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, saith Yahweh, which have burned incense upon the mountains and blasphemed me upon the hills. Therefore will I measure their former work into their bosom. Thus saith Yahweh, as the new wine is found in a cluster, and one says, destroy it not, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servants' sakes, that I may not destroy them all. And I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains, and mine elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. These subsequent verses foretell some of the punishments. Uh, I'm sorry, these, these subsequent verses, the verses after what we had just read from Isaiah 65, foretells some of the punishments which the Israelites would suffer for their sins. However, even with all their sins, the word of Yahweh says here in Isaiah that I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob and out of Judah an inheritor of my mountains and mine elect shall inherit it and my servants, plural, shall dwell there. And we see that the children of Israel remain the elect of God. Paul is not telling us, as the universalists love to claim, that non-Israelites can be Christians. Rather, he is using the first two verses of Isaiah chapter 65 rhetorically to show that the Israelites who were put off in the punishment of the captivity, who had long been pagans, were not seeking Yahweh, but had found him in Christ. Those are the people Isaiah is describing. And Paul has consistently cited these Old Testament prophets in reference to them. But Israel and Judea were seeking righteousness through the law, and they could not find it. Therefore, they remained a rebellious people by rejecting Christ. In Romans chapter 11, we shall see that Paul continues his appeal for his brethren, his kinsmen, according to the flesh in Judea. 
he also continues his comparison of Jacob and Esau and his discussion of the cast-off and long-ago dispersed Israelites. All three parties are discussed again in Romans chapter 11. Yahweh willing, we will be here with that next week. Tomorrow night, two seed line, some myths dispelled. Tomorrow night, I'll talk about the Gibeonites. I'll talk again about the Canaanite woman. I'll talk about Lucifer. Lucifer is not Satan. I'll talk about 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we'll find out who is Satan. And we'll talk about Ezekiel, maybe, and the Prince of Tyrus. Thank you for listening. Good night. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel.